0: Hey, what's up? It's Tim Gavin. One year that I don't often hear brought up in the conversation about music or pop culture history is 1993. It was the year that I was born, so I did get a little curious about what happened that year. So I thought, you know, because it's my birthday this week, we would kind of get a little self-indulgent, take a look at that year, and there was some really interesting stuff going on. It was right on the tail end of grunge, but there was still a lot of great music released in other genres that year. Especially if you like heavy metal. Great year for that genre, lots of great releases, many still fan favorites to this day. So we're going to dive in a little bit, see what was so great about 1993, not just in heavy metal, but a lot of stuff that was going on around then. Let's see what was happening, what was going on, and what was on the charts that year. This is the Tim Gavin Show, a holistic look at music. Even just looking on the surface, 1993 was a pretty interesting year, looking at what came out. Right off the bat, I still saw a handful of albums from 80s bands still trying to keep their popularity going. Poison had replaced their guitarist and released Native Tongue, which had a couple of songs on the charts but wasn't really anything special from the looks at reviews. Billy Idol also released his big flop Cyberpunk. In Excess released Full Moon Dirty Hearts to mixed reviews following a slight change in their sound. A lot of mixing things up to try and stay relevant and try something new, and you can tell that sometimes it just didn't work out as well. And Guns N' Roses would release a cover album that year, The Spaghetti Incident, right towards the end of 1993, with Guns N' Roses covering their influences, including The Damned, Nazareth, Misfits, and Soundgarden as well. But it would also be their last studio album until Chinese Democracy 15 years later, and of course with a whole new lineup, garnering a lot of controversy with the Spaghetti Incident when Axl Rose hit a Charles Manson cover on the final release. Yeah, you heard that right, Charles Manson. 1993 was a pretty big year for hip-hop as well with Snoop Dogg and Wu-Tang Clan both releasing their debut albums and Tupac releasing his second album. Eazy-E would also release his last extended play in his lifetime called It's On, largely a response to Dr. Dre's solo debut The Chronic from the previous year. A lot of stuff going on in alternative music as well. Radiohead released Pablo Honey after Creep became a surprise hit, and Bjork released Debut, which I think was technically her second or third album, but her debut as an international singer. Yeah, perfect for her first solo album, I think. And it was produced by Nelly Hooper, who worked with Massive Attack at the time, and would later produce music with Madonna, Gwen Stefani, and U2. Tool also released Undertow that year as well, It was their first full-length album. They had gotten some hype with last year's Opiate EP, but Undertow was where Tool started their rise to legendary status. And according to some critics, it's what kept heavy metal popular that year. But I think that really does 90s metal a disservice. Yeah, Tool were a popular metal band. Yes, they are important. But I don't think it's good to classify metal in terms of popularity, just in pure quality. Because in 1993, metal started getting even heavier and a lot more technical as well. Grunge influencers The Melvins put out their most commercially successful album, Houdini, in 1993, which had Kurt Cobain listed as a producer. Which is kind of funny because that album came out the same day as Nirvana's final studio album, In Utero. Continuing back over to heavy metal, Brazilian thrash metal band Sepultura changed their sound more towards groove metal with Chaos AD. Touring around that time with Pantera and Paradise Lost, who were also part of the group of bands giving goth metal some time in the spotlight, along with My Dying Bride and Anathema, but the band that brought that sound most into the mainstream in 1993 was Typo Negative with their breakthrough album Bloody Kisses. Ironically, their biggest song Black Number 1 being a bit of a jab at goth fashion and goth culture at the time. Death Metal evolved a lot in the early 90s as well, with bands exploring other influences and branching out into two new sub-genres, technical death metal and melodic death metal. And technical death metal is pretty much exactly how it sounds. Death metal with a lot more elaborate composition, weird time signatures, complex songwriting, and some of the most highly demanding instrumental skill that you'll hear pretty much anywhere. And a lot of this death metal incorporated a lot of jazz influence and progressive metal into their sounds too, with 1993 being a huge year for this sound but in some cases retroactively. Even though death metal had gotten more technical, it had reduced slightly in popularity around that time. Some landmark technical death metal albums include The Erosion of Sanity from Gore Guts in Quebec, which is a fan favorite but didn't keep Roadrunner Records from dropping Gore Guts shortly after. Florida band Atheist reformed and released Elements in August that year, not only incorporating jazz but also some Latin rhythms in there as well. Atheist had three members on guitar for this album, fulfilling their record contract, and disbanding once again. But one of the best albums to come from this time is the first album from Cynic, called Focus, formed by one-time members of Death, Sean Reinhardt and Paul Masvidal, taking death metal into completely uncharted prog territory, leaning mostly on jazz and using some pretty interesting instruments for bass, including a fretless bass guitar and the Chapman stick. Another thing that you might notice is that there's no blast beats on the drums. But one thing that really sets Cynic apart from similar bands are the vocals. Focus had two lead singers on it. Death Growls, taken care of by a guy named Tony Teagarden, and the clean and synthesized vocals done by frontman and lead guitarist Paul Masvidal. And going back to Death, that band kept their progressive metal leanings going from their album from that year, Individual Thought Patterns, which featured Gene Hoagland on it, who was fresh out of California thrash band Dark Angel, and would go on later to work with Fear Factory, strapping Young Lad and Testament, and be one of the most in-demand drummers in all of heavy metal. Meanwhile, over in Europe, death metal was getting a little more technical and a lot more grandiose, with melodic death metal coming in from two places, the UK and Sweden. And really the only reason the UK is in this conversation this time is because of one band, Carcass. They started out as a grindcore band featuring former associates of Napalm Death, adding really, really gory lyrical content, and instead, they added more melody on their landmark 1993 album Heartwork. But what most people consider melodic death metal comes from Gothenburg, Sweden, pioneered in 1993 by the album Skydancer by Dark Tranquility, which featured members who would create the band In Flames later on that year, and at the gates with with fear, I kissed the burning darkness." This was also kinda of the time when the Norwegian black metal scene was also in the spotlight, but not really due to music, but due to Varg Vikernes stabbing Euronymous from Mayhem. There were also a lot of church arsons associated with black metal between 1992 and 1995, but only one happened in 1993 that year. But it is just crazy what was going on in 1993 if you look a little bit outside the mainstream. But Now that we've looked at that, I think it's time that we go back into talking about pop music. So we're gonna look at some more pop culture history in 1993, but first we're gonna take a look at the billboard charts for this week all the way back then. And this chart for July, 1993, it is a little bit of a weird one. And there are are a lot of songs that I don't really remember at all. all right doing still the number one we got scotty back after what three weeks yeah it was uh
1: i think it's been about a month since i've been on the show i i don't know the the days and weeks all flow
0: together at this point i know right it's just the times that we're in like time doesn't matter anymore well that and just so much shit has gone on in my life <laughs> yeah i know right like you have put up with just too much over the past few weeks, man. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I don't want to play the poor, poor, pitiful me card, so we should probably just move into
0: this. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And 1993, very interesting week on the charts, the week that I decided to pop into existence. Okay, so, so I have a little bit of uh, backstory on this.
1: Why did you uh, choose this week? Because this is the week that I was born. Ah, okay. I was busy being not born yet, so...
0: (laughs) This is, uh... Well, yeah. It doesn't look like you were missing much, at least. If you ask me, every good song on this chart is below the top ten.
1: Yeah, so the top ten, just that we bring everybody into the inner circle uh come undone from Duran Duran was at number 10 which is a great song great song I th- I think it's the last really great Duran Duran song like I'd agree with you they there. were at their peak uh number nine expose I'll never get over you getting over me uh number eight was Dr Dre with Dre Day always a classic can't go wrong with some Dre but number seven Rod Stewart's have I told you lately? Uh number six Robin S. Show Me Love. That is probably my favorite of the top ten songs. <laughs> okay, good to know. Uh number five is H Town Knockin' to Boots. That's that that name sounds so familiar. Right. Yeah. Right. I, I wonder if Luke Bryan stole it. Allegedly. Uh I wouldn't be four, surprised. <laughs> number four, UB40, can't help falling in love. Number three, tag team which this is great. There it is. You gotta, that's a classic.
0: It is just an iconic one hit wonder right there. And
1: then uh, Janet Jackson, that's the way love goes too. And uh, number one this week, SWV
0: with the week, which is what I
1: think of this chart.
0: Oh, absolutely. (laughs) This chart is, this chart is weak sauce. This, This is like, this is the weakest chart that I have ever seen in my time doing still the number one.
1: Yeah, like, there's a whole bunch of names on here that you would
0: never know uh, in this day and age. Yeah, and the ones that are well-known, well, aside from tag team, we also have, like, just stuff that, you know, they've had way better material. Like, Inner Circle, Bad
1: Boys is on the list. Um, another one hit wonder, which was basically the 90s in general. Four non-blondes with What's Up
0: at 16 then at 18 we have the proclaimers i'm gonna be 500 miles and i guess this is where that song peaks for some reason even though (laughs) it's the song that's like still the most well-known and probably the best hit and most
1: played from the proclaimers exactly uh and then of course you got pm don with look at your patient eyes at 20 uh and then tony 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 (laughs) if i had no loot at 21 (laughs) Oh, that—that's a confusing
0: <laughs> band name right there.
1: I think it's just one person named Tony, and they spelt it three different ways for the song title.
0: God damn, that's fr- that's just frustrating to me.
1: <laughs> right? Okay. So when we back when you know we were actually working and I was uh, reconfiguring the databases and whatnot, I had to look up to make sure that that was actually legit, and it was.
0: Yeah. Did you like put a pronouncer in there too, or did you just? <sighs> no (laughs) No? just put a the third line is all tony (laughs) Ah. oh coming in in at number 28 this is another great song should have been bigger new order with regret and it's one you don't hear all that often now which is a shame because it is a great new order song like I i swear to god classic hit stations they are sleeping on new order hits
1: i mean the biggest new order songs are still being played
0: that's true, but they have like so bizarre many love good songs. triangle and whatnot. Yeah, well, bizarre uh, love triangle, blue Monday, and that's yeah. It. Uh
1: there's there's the odd one, other one that sneaks in there. I think True Faith sneaks in every so often.
0: I've never heard True Faith on the radio, but I would love to hear it. Like because it is such the percussion on it too is just mm-hmm. iconic.
1: Two songs that you do hear quite often on the radio, uh, making it into the top 40 at least. Uh, Number 34, Soul Asylum with Runaway Train, and number 37, Spin Doctors and Two Princes.
0: Also catching some Bon Jovi on this chart with In These Arms.
1: Oh, yes, yes. And there is still, you know, those classic rock vibes kicking in. Aerosmith is at 41 with Living on the Edge. Um, I guess you could even kind of count Sting with Fields of Gold at 46. I'm kind of
0: surprised to see green jelly on this chart, too. You, you ever heard Three Little Pigs?
1: <sighs> no. Okay. And
0: it's hilarious and weird, and you should check out this, the really cool Claymation music video sometime.
1: All right, I might have to do that. Uh, some of the debuts I want to talk about that are on this list. Number 47, Cypress Hill with Insane in the Brain.
0: Oh, that's a classic
1: uh and another classic i don't care who you are you will always sing along to this number 84 alan jackson chattahoochee
0: yeah that's (laughs) that one gets me right in the feels i'm not a country guy but i love me some chattahoochee
1: oh i think everyone does so it just take solace in the fact that it debuted on this week the week that you were born on the charts yeah
0: Yeah, i can i can take solace in that hey scott (laughs) yeah if you're going to a potluck at Alan Jackson's house, where is he going to tell you to uh, put what you bring? Where? Well, way down yonder by the charcuterie. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, I, I feel like I say that every single time. There's uh, but there's also um, there there's just a lot of songs from bands who had other big hits, as you mentioned, that are kicking around on this list as well. And, and and just artists in general, you know, TLC's get it up at 57. um, You know, Mary J. Blige is on this list. Whitney Houston, Big Mountain, David
0: Crosby and Phil Collins with Hero at 60. Going down to the bottom of the chart, I'm seeing uh, Lenny Kravitz, also Steve Miller Band, number 93 with Wide River, another song that I had never heard before.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that uh, debuted this week as well. And the stereo's, Stereo MCs right above that, 92 with Step It Up.
0: Yeah, that's a good one.
1: Oh yeah, totally, yeah. totally. Uh, and then kind of in the in-between stages, you know, you got ACDC in there with Big Gun at 71. Um, you got... Uh, Michael Jackson, who is it, at 70. Tupac's so I Get Around at 68. And
0: Radiohead, Creep, at 67. Man, right. and it didn't really, like, go much higher no. than that on the charts, too. And yet, again, another song that has aged way better. Than half the songs on this chart? Yeah. Even though it's still, it's still, one like, one of Radiohead's weakest songs. It's probably, like... Their most
1: mainstream,
0: though. Exactly, but but Radiohead—they don't—they've only just started playing it again. Yeah, yeah. Like they had the whole situation of, "It's our biggest hit, so we hate it."
1: <laughs> uh, it's funny how that works, you know. And and people going to concerts and whatnot. Of course, not right now, but when you know we could go to concerts, I'm sure they chanted all the time to play Creep.
0: Yeah, and that's and why eventually they relented in like recent years before all this happened. I have a feeling that it'll probably stay in Radiohead set list at least every other show when things start getting going again.
1: Oh, there's gonna be some people who are totally mad about the fact that at one show they played "Creep" and the next show they didn't.
0: Yeah, that's why you gotta you gotta just hope that that they're playing on a good day. <laughs> catch when they're feeling good about playing that song exactly though i'm i'm more of a high and dry kind of guy for their uh, yes. for their mainstream hits. Uh, yes yeah that's a, that's another good one run dmc
1: is also on the chart at number 82 with down with the king yeah which i mean that you got is... you got to enjoy a little bit of run dmc
0: yeah run dmc it's like they're one of those groups that you know i think everyone can just get into they always there's always that one run dmc mm-hmm. song whether it be their cover of walk this way or king of rock it's tricky it's tri- yes <laughs> that's, oh, a, it's jam. Tricky. that's have... a jam that's a jam it is i have a lot of like i have a lot of good memories with that song back in
1: college uh what else is on this list that you uh, wanted to mention
0: let's see oh i also wanted to mention uh, at number 89 porno for pyros you ever heard of this band i have not until i looked at this chart yeah, they are a Jane's Addiction side project featuring okay. uh, singer Perry Farrell. I think either the bassist or the drummer was in this band, but yeah, they they kind of did some really interesting stuff. If you like Jane's Addiction, definitely worth checking them out, but I'd rather just listen to Jane's Addiction if I'm going to check out Perry Farrell's stuff.
1: I noticed down at number 98 was the George Michael and Queen collab on Somebody to Love as well.
0: Yeah, and George Michael coming in at number ninety nine as well with "Killer Slash Papa" was a Rolling Stone. I don't. I wonder what that was even off of, because I I'd, I'd never heard that before. It spent
1: like Michael. a grand total of two weeks on the chart. You don't really need to get too uptight about that one.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Let's see another another name that kind of like sticks out. Uh, I see Jodeci on this chart a couple of times. I only just started listening to this year. They have some really good R&B. Okay. If it's
1: right in kind of with that 90s feel as well. I think so. But I'd say it's even
0: aged better than some other stuff too. Gotcha. Yeah. Also, Kenny G at number 36. Man, remember when Kenny G was like the biggest thing on the radio? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And all of a sudden,
1: just no more Kenny G ever.
0: Yeah. I don't know. Uh, I, I, li- I like some Kenny G. I'll, I, I have his greatest hits. I'll listen to it. It's it's good to relax too, man.
1: I, I guess. Yeah, totally. Uh, Dr. Dre also making another appearance at number 27 with nothing but a G thang.
0: Yeah, like this was like right when he was starting to make it big. The Chronic was released, uh, last was released the year before and of course I think he did a little bit of production on Snoop Dogg's debut as well. Yeah, this is just like 1993 was a pretty big year for rap music. It it totally was. And
1: also looks like it was kind of a big year for one hit wonders in general.
0: Yeah, I'd definitely say so.
1: I mean, like I said earlier, that's most of the nineties, just a whole whack of one hit wonders.
0: Yeah. Especially towards the mid-90s. Like this this time in music was definitely very transitional. Like you could tell like some of the big movements from the from years before. They're starting to flame out a little bit, but something new is coming.
1: And I think you see a lot of that. And I know I've mentioned before, you know, when you see the transitions on the charts and whatnot, it's not necessarily as soon as the turn of the decade hits. It takes a little while, whether it be even two to three years for the new trends to come around and start
0: making their waves. Exactly. Like, I think the stuff that really defines the 90s doesn't really come in until about 96, 97. That, I think, is where we really get the most of our 90s nostalgia from.
1: And I'm pretty sure that's, you know, where we're seeing a lot of... Especially because the... um the main group of people who are coming up and, you know, listening to radio and stuff like that are the people who were born in the nineties. Right. So we get those nostalgic feels because, you know, uh, even people who were born in the early nineties are starting to, you know, remember songs as early as that 96, 97 area.
0: Yeah. It's just too bad. I can't have any nostalgia for 1993. I don't of course just being born. Don't remember much of it, but it doesn't look like I was missing out on too much anyways.
1: So I'm going to let you just have the verdict on this one, seeing it as it is your birthday week. SWV week, still the number one?
0: No, I'm sorry. I, I've listened to it. It's an all right song, but I don't see how it was number one, even when there was like a few other songs that were better and way at the bottom of the charts. It's not still the number one.
1: What would you mark as number one from this
0: chart if you could? From this chart, definitely Radiohead. You would, eh? I would, because it is the song that has aged the best, regardless of its chart position.
1: (sighs) Okay, I know I said I was going to let you have the final word on this one, but I'm going to argue now on this part. Okay. Uh, I'm going to say, just based on your argument earlier, the Proclaimers I'm going to be.
0: Ooh, I mean, I like that song, but... It only, it only peaked at 18. Yeah. But who has had more impact on music as a whole, Radiohead <laughs> or The Proclaimers? How did I know that that was going to be the sentence coming out of your mouth? <laughs> you know, I think this might be a good chance for the listeners to decide on this one. Who, who does Which song is better, Creep by Radiohead or The Proclaimers' 500 Miles?
1: I mean personal preference i would say creep is the better song but chart wise i would have to say and despite where they fell on the chart i would say that proclaimers probably would have had a little bit more staying power it's just too bad they couldn't do much more in terms of getting into the top 10 with that song fair
0: enough fair enough The music history of 1993 doesn't end with what was released and what happened directly in the public eye, though. There were a lot of bands that formed this year. This was right around the time that new Metal started coming together, Korn, Coal Chamber, and Mushroomhead all started coming together, started rehearsing. Over in Extreme Metal, you had bands like Children of Bodom, Nile, and Ulver forming. Going into more familiar territory, you had Savage Garden, The Backstreet Boys, and All For One all forming in 1993. And going more into pop music, 1993 was a rough year for Michael Jackson, to say the least. Started out strong with the first really big NFL halftime show. The performance was a big success and began the whole trend of big halftime shows at the end of the season to bring in more viewers for that big game. Oprah interviewed MJ a week and a half later, and that interview became one of the most watched interviews in TV history. And it was also his first in 14 years. And then... The first of those child abuse allegations came out later in July in 1993, and things weren't the same for Michael Jackson after that for the rest of his life. 1993 was also the year that Prince changed his name. Doing so, to spite Warner Brothers, he used an unpronounceable symbol, usually called love symbol number two, but outlets started calling him the artist formerly known as Prince. With media taking a few jabs and making a few references to it, making jokes of it for the rest of the 90s, And that caused a lot of problems for any publication wanting to talk about Prince. I mean, you can't just type the symbol. So Prince had a custom-designed computer font made, putting it on a bunch of floppy disks and then sending them out to publications all over the world. And also releasing a ton of albums just to get out of his contract. Meatloaf made a huge comeback this year, too, getting one of the biggest hits of the year with I Would Do Anything For Love But I Won't Do That, right off of Battle to Hell 2. It was Meatloaf's first and only number one hit, and at 7 minutes and 52 seconds for one of the radio edits, and 12 minutes for the full version, it's one of the longest hit singles in music history. And it held that record until Oasis released All Around the World in 1997, clocking in around nine minutes for the radio edit. In November 1993, Nirvana performed their legendary Unplugged concert, first broadcast in December that year. I guess you could almost say 1993 was transitional. There was a lot going on just outside the mainstream, getting ready to start coming into the public eye, and you could really tell some interesting stuff was on the way. It was really good having my friend Scott Mitchell back on Still the Number One. Make sure you check out his podcast, Somewhat Blind Substance, a new episode coming out soon. You can like us on Facebook. Don't forget to share this podcast with your friends, family, and other music lovers in your life. And leave a review on Apple Podcasts as well. Thanks for listening to The Tim Gavin Show, a holistic look at music.